Hi, my name is Peter Beinart. I'm a fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and you're listening to another edition of the Occupied Thoughts podcast. And I'm very honored uh, today to be joined by Chagai El-Ad, who is the executive director of the Israeli human rights organization, B'Tselem, which is releasing um, a very important uh, document that I think will occasion a lot of conversation. I'm really happy that we have the chance to begin the conversation about it today. Um, uh, the, the document is, uh, is titled um, A Regime of Jewish Supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, colon, this is apartheid. Um, uh, Haggai, uh, you know as well as anyone that um, this term is dynamite um, uh, uh, in the public discourse, both in Israel and around the world, um, extremely incendiary. Um, uh, and um, I want to just start broadly by asking, you know, B'Tselem is a, is a very Im important human rights organization, which has a lot of influence um, around the world, um, your voice carries. So why the decision now to, to use this term to describe the reality in Israel? Yeah, um, thanks for that question and for the opportunity to be in this uh, podcast. It's the result of a, a long process that, uh, that we've been through. Uh, internally, and in some ways, it's the result of a process of more than 30 years of, of B'Tselem work. Uh, we were founded back in uh, 1989 during the first Intifada, uh, and during the years, reality has changed, both because time has passed and years and decades have accumulated, but also because more and more facts have accumulated, and also the, the thinking and the analysis uh, inside B'Tselem has changed and, and evolved over the years, as a response to, to these developments. If you want to would have followed our, our language over the years, you would see us moving from talking about occupation to prolonged occupation uh, to a one-state reality uh, and now to apartheid. Um, these changes uh, are an expression of our both our thinking and our response to the reality, but also our, our commitment uh, both to follow the facts and the analysis as we see them um, and our commitment to try and be as effective in a serious and credible way uh, in our efforts to try and change this reality into something that would be based on justice and equality and not on the supremacy of one group over another. But I, I really can't emphasize enough uh, how extraordinary and unusual this uh, position paper is for us. It's the first time in the history of the organization in which we publish an analysis of the situation between the river and the sea. So let's start with the, with the term itself um, before we move on to the kind of the particular circumstances that have changed uh, for you. Um, the, the term is, of course, it, it is an Afrikaans term. It comes from South Africa. It means apartness in, in Afrikaans. And, and so the, the response by, by some will be, to, will be to say, well, wait a second. This term uh, describes, was created to describe a reality in apartheid South Africa, which is not the same um, as in Israel-Palestine. So uh, Black South Africans could not vote, for instance, um, for the South African government, no matter where they lived. And, and yet uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, who are often called Arab Israelis, can vote and are represented in the Knesset. Some have even been on the, the Supreme Court. So 
talk a little bit about why you chose to use this term and how do you how you respond to those people who would say, no, no, there are fundamental differences between Israel-Palestine and apartheid South Africa. There are differences and there are core similarities. And obviously we explore them, I think, in, in great detail and nuance in our position paper. But it's also important to be reminded that apartheid isn't only a historical reference point. Uh, and the situation doesn't need to be identical in every detail to the way things played out between whites and blacks uh, in South Africa. Apartheid is also an independent term by now, uh, which means a regime that is working to promote and cement the supremacy of one group of people over another. And our analysis comes to the conclusion that that is what the Israeli regime is doing between the river and the sea. Now, there are details that are different. And one of the sophisticated ways in which the situation is not identical to the situation in South Africa is that there are different subunits uh, of territory under Israel's control, mainly four of them, Israel proper inside the Green Line, uh, the one part of the occupied territories that was already formally annexed, that's East Jerusalem, uh, the rest of the West Bank that was only quote unquote de facto annexed uh, and the Gaza Strip. These are the four major units of territory under Israel's control. And in each and every one of them, there's a difference in the details of the set of uh, less rights that Palestinians receive uh, as compared to Jews. Uh, but the common fact that you will find in all of these subunits is that in none of them, a Palestinian would be equal to a Jew. Now, you zoomed in specifically on one of the aspects, which is voting rights of Palestinians who are citizens of the state of Israel. But that only spells out that a fraction, approximately 25% of the Palestinians that are under Israel's control have political rights, have voting rights. And that does not change the overall picture of Jewish supremacy over Palestinians in the entire territory. Well, let's stick with that population um, for a moment, because I think that might be where you would get the strongest pushback. Some people might say, listen, we recognize that Palestinians in, 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 in the West Bank, uh, in East Jerusalem and Gaza uh, don't have the same rights, uh, but, um, but, but um, Palestinian citizens, Arab Israelis, um, you know, are citizens. They, they do have voting rights. They have free movement inside of Israel. They live under the same legal system. So, so to play devil's advocate, um, how, why is it fair to describe Israel as an apartheid regime, even inside Israel proper, where uh, its Palestinian citizens enjoy those rights? Yeah, I feel like we, we kind of like, you know, skipped a, a phase in, in, in our analysis, which I think is critical. And I think it would be also helpful for readers of the position paper and anyone listening to, to this conversation, which is the, the, the emphasis and the centrality of a one regime analysis between the river and the sea. So I'm aware that many people, perhaps most people, are used to thinking about the situation in Israel-Palestine as two regimes, as if there is a democratic Israel that exists inside the Green Line, and attached to it, there is this um, temporary occupation project, right? Uh, so there's one regime and another regime, or is this equation, democracy plus occupation. And our position is that that worldview 
has become completely untethered to reality and holding on to that position is part of why the situation is so stuck and does not move forward. Because one of the main um, ways in which this is so problematic is unaccept and unacceptable is that the clock is permanently stuck on two minutes to midnight and it can somehow, amazingly, I think in a way that's totally unconvincing, but and yet it still exists in the public discourse that people can hold on to this, I wouldn't call it a fantasy, hold on to this lie of democracy plus occupation. And there will be a lot of sentences that will be always phrased in the future tense that will say, if X or Y or Z would happen, then Israel would become an apartheid state, right? And the most recent expression of that was the very prolonged discussion with, with regard to de jure annexation that played out during much of 2020 since the publication of, of the Trump plan at the beginning of the previous year. And that is divorced from reality. There is no separate regime in the West Bank. It's not that the Israeli army has uh, conducted a military coup and is acting independently in the West Bank. What is happening there is controlled by the government of Israel. The army there is implementing Israeli policy as decided by the government. And I haven't said anything about the more than 600,000 settlers that live in permanent communities in the West Bank and the infrastructure lines and all of the other ways in which this has become one geopolitical unit, which is ruled and controlled by one government that controls everyone and everything between the river and the sea. Not if and when in the future that moment will arrive. That moment has arrived. The clock hasn't been stuck on two minutes to midnight as people have been pretending for the last, I don't know how many years. The clock has moved on and we have arrived at that point. So it's also essential that there will be an understanding that with this position paper, our aim is not to move from a worldview of democracy plus occupation to a worldview of democracy plus apartheid. No, there is no plus in the middle. There is no separation between these regimes that are attached on the green line. There is one government. And then we proceed to analyze the policies of this government in the entire area. And in the entire area, what we already have is demographic parity, 7 million Jews and 7 million Palestinians living between the river and the sea. And yet what the government does in different ways and in different measures of inequality follows the same logic. So it's not just that it's one regime, but everywhere that you will look, you won't find a single square inch within the river and the sea in which a Jew and a Palestinian are equal. So um, uh, let's talk about um, that's very. I think that's a very helpful setup. Let, let me let me then backtrack before we go back to Israel's Palestinian citizens by asking you. You say that there is what has what has changed that led you to write this report. You say that that um, there is one regime between the river and the sea that Israel controls it all. Um, that was true in 1989 when B'Tselem was created as well. Um, so and yet B'Tselem was not talking in this language back then. So. What are the events that, that for you made um, you decide, what has changed that made you decide that now you wanna start talking about this as a unified uh, apartheid regime when for most of B'Tselem's history, it did not? 
Yes. So I already alluded to some like the, the longer term processes that have been happening both externally and internally. But zooming in on more recent developments, and we highlight these in the position paper itself, there are two recent developments that convinced us that the threshold have been crossed and that we must call it apartheid at this point in time. And both of these, uh, I think interestingly, are related to a process of, of unmasking. Because actually, I mean, there are also other differences between apartheid South Africa and apartheid Israel. And one of them is whether the regime is self-proclaimed as such. And of course, it doesn't need to be self-proclaimed, but in South Africa, it was. And in Israel, it is not. But more recently, it is becoming unmasked and more visible and more, more pronounced in a direct way than it was in years past. These two developments, one is the recent passage back in 2018 of the, the basic law, Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people. And the other one is the discussion about the Jura annexation. Now, why do I say that these are more about unmasking than about other aspects, even though they would also potentially have um, also um, actual specific uh, consequences in the real world beyond, beyond unmasking. So one with regard to the nation state basic law, what we are not saying is that policy-based discrimination against Palestinian citizens of Israel began with the passage of the basic law. No, that was the case since 1948, since the foundation of the state. What happened with the passage of that basic law, which is as close as you can get to a constitutional in Israel, because that's our variation of uh, passing a constitution gradually by accumulation of basic laws, it elevates that principle of Jewish supremacy to a constitutional level, enshrining that in a basic law. So it takes a reality that already pre-existed, but elevates it in such a way. We think that's a very significant moment in that regard. And in a parallel way, there's also an unmasking which is related to the discussion about the jure annexation. And again, from our perspective, the area was already de facto annexed, right? Israel already does whatever it wants, wherever it wants in the occupied territories. That did not wait and is not waiting for the jure annexation. It happens all the time already regardless of that. But with the conversation about the jure, it spells out instead of like the, what used to be the usual lip service about temporariness and negotiations and two-state solution uh, and other ways of appeasing the international community while actually dictating the facts on the ground to be going in a, the opposite direction, it changes that into an open discussion about permanent Israeli control over the entire territory uh, where the Palestinians will remain uh, subjugated in their Bantu stance in the fragmented West Bank forever, as was also discussed at the time with, with American backing, right? So again, it shifts the conversation in that sense and brings us closer to the genuine intention and to what the facts demonstrate that they are. And from our perspective, from our analysis, when you combine these two recent developments, that threshold has been crossed. So let's go back to the to the question of what you see as the core um, similarities uh, uh, across the green line. You, you seem to be arguing that the differences in um, between the status of uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel inside Israel proper and Palestinians in the West Bank or East Jerusalem or Gaza are differences in degree, but not in kind. That there is a kind of fundamental 
uh, uh, similarity um, between the, the, the situation of all Palestinians who live under Israeli control. So talk a little bit about, about what that fundamental similarity is and, and why you think it's, um, it's correct, again, to use the term apartheid even inside Israel proper. Yeah. So first, what we present is this fragmented space, this space, which is fragmented for Palestinians, but the opposite uh, for, for Jews, right? Uh, and then uh, the analysis for with regard to the situation vis-a-vis -vis Palestinians, obviously, is more complicated because unlike for Jews, there are the differences in the different subunits. The position paper itself focuses on four main pillars of the ways in which this is um, realized by the Israeli apartheid regime, right? So one is in the context of citizenship and immigration. The other one is in the context of land management. We also explore freedom of movement and political rights. And amongst these four pillars, you can actually you know, group them into two couples. Uh, and in two of them, you would find uh, great similarities anywhere uh, in the area between the river and the sea in the context of citizenship, immigration, uh, and in the context of land management. And with the other two, there will be more differences between Palestinians who are citizens and Palestinians who are subjects, right? Uh, so I'll now talk about these two, two aspects that are very similar everywhere between the river and the sea, land management, and, 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 and who can immigrate to, to areas under Israel's control, right? So in terms of like land management, uh, we analyze the, the flow of land. Land has been flowing since 1948 inside the Green Line from Palestinian hands into the states of the hand of, of into the hands of the state, uh, and then used for the development of uh, Jewish towns while restricting the development of Palestinian communities. And since 1967, you see a very similar process happening in the occupied territories, right? Uh, so the same trajectory, land that used to be Palestinians moves into uh, the hands of the state, then uh, it's used for the development of Jewish communities, while at the same time restricting the development of Palestinian communities. And you can you know, think about also like you know, specific uh, examples, but they're all part of like the same bigger picture, right? So like, you know, land confiscations from Palestinians in the Galilee in order to establish uh, the city of Carmiel. Uh, land confiscations from Palestinians in the West Bank in order to establish the city of Malay Adumim, uh, and other similar uh, policies with regard to limitations on planning as applied, and then resulting with people being unable to build uh, with permits, resulting in demolitions. And, and there are numerous other examples in that way where you see very similar policies applied against Palestinians, whether you're a citizen or not a citizen on one side of the Green Line or on the other side of the Green Line. Uh, and that's our discussion of the land re-engineering of the space. And there's a parallel discussion, which again, is applied with great similarities everywhere within the river and the sea with regard to the demographic management and demographic engineering of the space. And basically the ability of any Jewish person to immigrate to Israel and to gain citizenship and thus also political rights. And the extreme limitations that Israel applies on the ability of Palestinians to gain personal status 
in Israel, whether it is inside the Green Line or in the other areas under Israel's control. Right. Um, let's talk for a moment about, about the Gaza Strip. Um, so one, um, it's common, as you know, in, in, in much of, um, I think, uh, the political discourse in the in the United States and and, and I and I um, and I think in Israel as well to essentially discuss the Gaza Strip as if it's not under Israeli control, which is to say that whatever is happening, that are whatever unfortunate things are happening in the Gaza Strip, that can't be could not be considered part of this integrated system of apartheid as you as you call it. So maybe respond to that. Yeah. So I appreciate the question because first I think that you know even before like not discussing Gaza as part of like the, 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 the complete picture, there's the phenomena of just like not discussing Gaza, like pretending it's, it's, it's not there and forgetting about 2 million people that are locked in what has become one of the largest open air prisons on the planet. And from Israel's perspective, and this was also like spelled out openly in you know, various moments uh, around uh, the history from the disengagement from Gaza and, and so on, the, the math was pretty simple, right? The empty land uh, that we can settle is very desirable, uh, while areas that have a relatively high percentage of Palestinian population are much less desirable. So in that sense, the math that was eventually done was to quote unquote, give up on a relatively small patch of land, but hopefully in that sense, um, relieving Israel from the burden, from the demographical burden of 2 million people, right? And once you do that, as if one can do that, right? But like in that train of thought, then suddenly like 14 million people, seven and seven becomes 12 million people, seven plus five, and the math changes, right? So like that, that's the, a big part of the motivation around Israeli moves around, uh, around Gaza. However, uh, Gaza is under Israeli control from the outside in numerous ways that dictate daily life in Gaza, including the fact that there is a single population registry between the river and the sea, including everyone in Gaza, which is a population registry which is run by the government of the state of Israel, the one government that has that authority between the river and the sea. So to pretend that Israel does not control Gaza is simply false. And not to count the 2 million people in Gaza and ignore also their history and their connection to Palestinians inside Israel proper, to Palestinians in the West Bank, is simply um, cooperating with that demographic agenda by Israel. This is one geopolitical unit, which includes the Gaza Strip, which includes the 2 million people that live in Gaza. And there's simply no other human way to analyze the situation. Now, what I haven't done, and also like in this, you know, I wanted to condense the answer, is also I didn't you know, spend time also like discussing like the history, like you know, how many, so many Palestinian refugees from Israel proper ended up in Gaza. And also the original Israeli plan to fragment the Gaza Strip itself in ways that are not that different than the processes that have played out in the West Bank, like the original five-finger plan uh, by Israeli governments to build settlements in the Gaza Strip, and that was meant to separate between Palestinian population centers 
inside the Strip until eventually uh, that, you know, Israel came out of its own volition to the conclusion that that plan isn't working and opted for a different, for, for a different plan. So just think in that sense of Gaza, instead of Gaza being divided into three or four smaller Bantustans, uh, Israel has decided that it's more practical to keep it as one big Bantustan, which is where we are now. Um, I encourage everyone to read the report. There's a lot of very interesting detail in it, but, but I want to just end um, on a somewhat different note, which is B'Tselem is not only a research organization, it's an activist organization. It's an organization that seeks to create political change. And so um, you must have thought a lot about um, the, the, the benefits and potentially drawbacks of making this set of claims and using this language um, uh, as an organization seeking political change. Uh, this, I don't need to tell you that this um, will likely produce a ferociously negative response um, uh, among is most Israeli Jews and among uh, you know most many diaspora Jews as well. Um, uh, the term apartheid, for whatever reason, has a particularly or particular sting to it. If you go back to the impact that it had when Jimmy Carter used it and others, so just. So, and, and I and you know you are an Israeli Jew. You this is the society in which you also live. So I want you. I want you if you can just talk a little bit about the strategic thinking about why this makes sense, and also perhaps if you can talk personally about what the impact uh, and your thinking is individually about essentially doing something that really makes you, if you were not already, a kind of pariah in your own society. Yeah. Um... I think maybe I want to begin the, the answer by, by inviting people uh, before the, you know, for some, I assume the rage, to read the report with an open mind. Um, we have, we went to great length um, to be thoughtful and nuanced and, and factual and very tethered to, to the facts and the, and, and the reality. Um, so, I, I really would very much want people to give themselves the intellectual freedom of mind to sit with that with that report uh, and see where it meets them, even if it meets them in an uncomfortable way, uh, because I think the truth has a lot of power, in fact, a lot of power. Uh, and if people don't close their eyes on, on, on purpose, then they will see the facts, and if they allow themselves to sit with that, and I think there's also an, an option for minds to, to change and for an awakening to happen uh, and for a different future to be, to be developed, which is exactly our agenda uh, in, in, in publishing this. Before that, I'll just say that, you know, even if we would have thought that this isn't going to be impactful in a constructive way, like we have a commitment as a human rights organization to follow the facts. Like if we come to a certain conclusion, we have an intellectual and moral and professional obligation to publish our conclusions, right? Whether I think it's gonna be practical or not, doesn't matter a great deal in that, in that sense. It's just like not part of the DNA of a human rights organization to, to sit on the conclusion and not, to, and not to publish it. But having said that, um, I am as difficult as this is, and this is difficult, uh, optimistic about this moment. It's not a moment of despair. It's a moment of clarity. 
and we want to change the discourse. We think that the discourse around Israel-Palestine has to change if we want to arrive at a different future. Again, one not based on supremacy of one group over another, but based on justice and full rights and self-determination for everyone, for Jews and for Palestinians. I have no uh, illusions with regard to how I expect difficult and long the, the road ahead still is, but I'm also very convinced, as everyone at B'Tselem is, the board, the team, everyone, that if we do not call a spade a spade, if we do not identify reality as what it is, it's gonna be that many more times more difficult to address the fundamental flaws that needs to change uh, for us to somehow, finally, I hope, move from this like very horribly stuck situation that we're in. And when I say, I, I say we, I wanna emphasize that obviously the people that are suffering the most by far from this reality are Palestinians that are living under this oppressive regime. Um, but the discourse has to change, the framework has to change so that the future will be a different one. The last thing I, I want to say is that, uh, uh, Peter, I mean, you spoke about how um, loaded the term is. Uh, and and I, I think there, there are many reasons for that. And, and I think some of them are um, manufactured and are aimed to, to scare people from seeing reality for, for what it is. Uh, but, but I think that also part of it is, is emotional and is genuine. Uh, and I, and I want to say something about, about that. I think in, in the genuine context, I think part of the, the fear is because there is an attachment to what I've said before, like this fantasy that to that temporarily project of occupation, which is wrong, but before that, there is something uh, independent of that that, 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 is, that is not like that. Right, uh, and it's and it's difficult, I think, to make that transition into a moment in which you appreciate that that is no longer the case. That what we have to look at and what we have to expect accept is that view with regard to the one regime, including the state of Israel itself, that exists between the river and the sea. Um, Chagai, thank you so much for spending some time uh, with me discussing the report. Again, I would I would just echo what you said for all of those, whether you um, whether you find yourself uh, inspired or 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 challenged or even uh, uh, enraged by um, by the claims in this report, uh, read it and and, and grapple with it. Um, uh, and um, I wish you all the best of luck, Chagai, in in the future work that you do. And um, I look forward to watching the. The debate that this uh, report produces. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. That if the whole thing just gets like erased somehow. <laughs>